Psalm 146 is a psalm of praise. But what do we think about praise in our daily life? What do you make of or do with this psalm come Tuesday? If you were to get a tap on your shoulder in the middle of your working week and somebody would quote you verse 2, I will say, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. How would you react? Would you think, oh no, a happy clappy type? Or would you say, not now in weekdays, a psalm is for the solemn environment, the setting of worship in church, that is where you sing psalms. Or maybe later, in heaven, as it says in Revelations. Or maybe you would say, well, not now. I don't really feel like it. I'm not in the mood. I'm stressed, I'm down, or I'm simply busy. Is praise kind of a mood, mood music? And what do you feel in praise? Is praise always good for you? And when you read the book of Revelations, have you maybe secretly wondered with me when I was a little boy, when all this singing in heaven might not get to be a bit boring? Well, we come back to these questions looking at the psalm. And as we do so, it is worthwhile noting that both in the Book of Common Prayer and in Judaism, this psalm was part of the daily morning prayer. So with this song of praise, the working day was started. Now let's first look at the context of the psalm. There isn't much of it. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, dating from about 250 before Christ, attributes the psalm to the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And both of them, they were two of the three post-exilic prophets. And if you place them in the time, you can see them trying to keep courage in rebuilding the ruins of what once was. The Davidic kingdom had lasted for more than four years longer than any other kingdom in the ancient Near East, and there had been Solomon's temple in all its glory, but the chosen people had then been killed and transported away. And what had come back out of the exile was destitute, poor, a remnant. And a big part of the people of Israel had been estranged, and they had stayed with the good life in Babylon. Just a few faithful had gone back. The kingdom had gone after a long line of failing kings, and they were often there losing courage, scrabbling to make a life in Palestine and under the threat of unfriendly neighbors. And then there is this psalm of praise. There is another angle to look at the context, and that is the place in the book of Psalms. 
which in Hebrew is called the Book of Praise. Now, the Book of Psalms was probably composed and edited after the exile. And again, that was that period of time which resulted from and was the confirmation of the ultimate inability of Israel's kings and rulers to deliver them from the dangers of this life. And this editor composed this book from all the existing psalms of Moses, of David, Solomon, and many others. And he did some selection and he did some grouping. And usually the book of psalms is divided in five books. There is David's ascent, his heyday, decline, ending in Psalm 89, and then there are books four and five. And many of the psalms individually go from lament to praise. Psalm 22 is a very good example. And that is true for the book of psalms as well. The editor of the book of psalms looks back at Israel's history and all its misery and its failings, and he ends them with three series of psalms of praise, the Hallel psalms. And the last one of these series are Psalms 146 to 150. So the conclusion of the editor is after a book with many of the psalms reflecting on the struggles of life, the challenges, the darkness, the injustices, the pain and the doubt, there are five concluding psalms that all five begin and end with praise the Lord. Psalm 146 is the first one, and also this one begins and ends with an imperative in the plural. It is addressed to you all. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Both the poet of the psalm and the editor of the book of psalms make it pretty clear what their point is. Praise the Lord. So then against this background of Haggai and Zechariah and the editor of the book of Psalms, what to make of this exhortation to praise, what to think about it, what exactly to do with it, and what to expect from it. And I would like to summarize the message of God's word for you this morning as follows. Hear and enjoy the instruction to praise your God, of help and hope. Hear and enjoy the instruction to praise your God of help and hope. Or sing with joy, praising your God of help and hope. And we know two things. In the first place, to all, there is the general warning and encouragement. And in the second place, there is to the psalmist and to we, if we sing the psalm self, ourself, the personal conclusion and resolution. So in the first place, then, sing with joy, praising your God of help and hope. And there is then, first to all, the general warning and the encouragement. The point of the psalm, as we saw, is an instruction to praise the Lord. It's very straightforward. The psalm begins in verse 1a with hallelujah, 
It's a verb. The verb is halal. It means to praise. The form is the plural imperative. And yah is the suffix, suffix which means Yahweh. And in case we miss the point, he also ends with it in verse 10b. The point is made at the beginning, at the end of the five psalms, closing the whole book of psalms, the book of praise. And that is the note with which the poet and the composer end. And then there is in the verses 1b and 2 a self-address, to which we'll, we will come back on our second point. So that leaves us then with the verses 3 to 10a, which we look at under our first, first point. And the heart of this section is verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is in the name, is the God of Jacob, and whose hope is the Lord his God. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in, in the Lord his God. And that is followed then by an elaboration of who this God is and what he is like. And this together is the encouragement, the motivation to praise the Lord, the verses 6 to 10a. But it is preceding, preceded by a warning, by way of contrast, in the verses 3 to 4. So it's don't do this. Again, it's a plural imperative, an order, an exhortation to all, but do that. We are to praise the Lord and not to trust in princes or important people. And that is a very relevant start, isn't it? For that is the temptation during the week in everyday life, in the busyness and the business of the week. You look around on Monday morning in real life, and where is the Lord in your house, in your office, in your workplace, and in your street? And what, if you go about your business in London, should bring him to mind? And why burst out in praise to him? What good is that going to do? Aren't there more practical, relevant connections in our life? Maybe it's good to know some important politicians so they can send some little subsidy or a Quango chairmanship or a little building project your way. Or to know a bureaucracy Mandarin who can help you with some permit that otherwise would take weeks to get out of the system. Or to know a company captain who can help your son to get a job. Or maybe at the more pedestrian level, to have a good friend at the garage who can help you fix your car without bleeding you white. Or to have a good friend who once in a while takes the kids off your hands just about when you were to start screaming. Or even to have a loving and caring and supportive partner in your life. Isn't that more practical, more relevant, and of more importance to your daily life? And yet, there is then here this warning. For as we all upon reflection know and have learned through bitter and sad experience, such support, it goes away or it falls away. It lets you down or it goes down. It disappoints, it is powerless, and it leaves you alone. 
our text is actually quite somber or outspoken or realistic, whatever you want to call it. And in it, there resonate the words of Genesis 3, verse 19, which is the curse on Adam after the fall, where it says, For you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And our text here literally says, The Son of Man, in verse 3, Adam, to the earth, Adama, it's the same wordplay as in Genesis. To his earth, to the earth to which he belongs, there, says verse 4, he will return. And the text states it flatly and clearly. In the Son of Man there is no salvation. The same word as Jesus. They go away or they let you down. And if not that, they may fall away and go down themselves. The text is nearly staccato. It departs his breath. He returns to the ground, to his ground. And on the day, that very day, they perish his thoughts, his schemes, his visions, his plans, his dreams, his commitments, his intentions. And if you look around you, that's what you see. Even the mightiest on earth throughout history, Alexander the Great, President Kennedy, Hugo Chavez, one moment they are in full swing of power, jumping up and down, ordering this, that, speaking on the telly, and the next moment, they're just a corpse. Rulers, TV celebrities, boardroom captains, to use Shakespeare's words, they strut and fret their hour upon the stage and then are heard no more. Or in what version, Isaac Watts' version of the psalm, why should I make a man my trust? Princes must die and turn to dust. Vain is the help of flesh and blood. Their breath departs, their pomp and power, and thoughts all vanish in an hour. Nor can they make their promise good. That is the contrasting warning in the verses 3 to 4. Then it is followed by the encouragement and the motivation for praise at the heart, as we saw in verse 5, where it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Now, the word used here for blessed is not referring to a benediction, the utterance of a wish, but it is a congratulation. It registers effect. It is not may he be blessed, but blessed is he. Who? Well, the one who does not rely on princes, but on God. Whose help in the here and now is the God of Jacob, and whose hope for the future is in the Lord his God. That person is blessed, and that is the reason for the praise. But then again, you look around on Monday, and how and why could or would anybody who seeks his help and hope in God be sure that he is indeed blessed as a fact, and thus to have this reason for praise? Well, of course, the poet understands that doubt because he had looked around on his Mondays after the exile. 
And then he goes on to explain why in the verses 6 to 9a. And what we see there is that opposite the fragility of human life, even of princes and powerful, that is the massive, everlasting, everything exceeding might of the Creator, the one who made it all in the first place. And again here there is the resonance of Genesis, the echo of Genesis, the one who made. And of course he can be relied on in every circumstance because there is nothing in history or in nature that God cannot deal with because he created it all. He is the Lord of all. And his power never falls short no matter what the challenge or the impossibility is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. And it's important to know that combination because God not only can do everything to help as the Almighty, the creator of this world, but as the covenant Lord in the second part of this verse, he also wants to. He has promised to help. In verse 6b, the word who has actually the definite article in front of it for emphasis. He is the one who keeps faith forever. Because there is no transitoriness, no iffiness about his faith, reliability, and truth. The covenant Lord is true to himself, true to the purpose of creation, and true to his promise, true to his covenant, true to you. And the section of the verses 6 to 9a consists of five participles, action words. The Lord, in verse 5, the one making heaven and earth, making all that is in them, keeping faith, guarding truth, providing justice, giving food. And these are then followed by five times the Lord, plus again a participle and action word. The Lord, he is the one setting, and so on. So the psalmist is hammering it home here, as it were. It's the Lord, not Baal. It's the Lord, not the prime minister or the first minister or some other minister. The Lord and not your good friend or mighty friend. The Lord, not the doctor. The Lord, not whatever. The Lord is the one who is your help and hope. And that is why you can sing his praise. If you look at it, you will see that throughout the psalm, the poet uses 11 times the word Lord, Yahweh the covenant Lord, the shepherd of Israel, the one who selected and protected his people. And he uses four times the word God, Elohim, the Almighty, the Creator. But even then, it is not remote or far away. Because in this psalm, it is always with the possessive pronoun. It is my God, in verse 2. It is his God, in verse 5. It is your God in verse 10, or it is the God of Jacob. Now, man can be Jacob as a shorthand for Israel, in which case it means the God of our forefathers, of our people, i.e. our God. Or it can literally be a reference to the person Jacob, the man whose name meant deceiver, who believed in God but was otherwise a tricky dicky with a father who was somewhat weak, a mother who had courage but was a schemer, 
whose sons were envious, envious and cruel, and two of them were outright vicious, Simeon and Levi at Shechem. Or simply, the God of a group of people with all their failings, like we are and like we can see all around us. The God to be praised, the God of help and hope, is the Almighty One and the One faithful to all His failing people. And then there is, in verse 9, be the summary. He does, God does, what the righteous king, the shepherd, should do. And the bigwigs down here so often do not. He upholds. And the way of the wicked, the road of the rascals, he will make tortuous and twisted. You see, as we all know, in a world of princes, right and wrong are often twisted. Unnatural relations are declared normal and beautiful, and you are a narrow-minded bigot if you think otherwise. And defenseless children are aborted, and the mighty fill their pockets and stick their snouts in the trough. But the Lord is true to himself and to his promise. And he will lead creation to what he intended it to be. And he will set all wrong to right. And he will not simply rule, exercise power for its own sake, but he will draw the world into salvation back to its original intention. And then in verse 10, that is the conclusion, the Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Forever. We saw it in verse 6 and verse 10. All generations again in verse 10. The Lord, who does reign, will reign, and he will not go away or fall away. And therefore, praise the Lord. So we heard then in the first place, sing with joy, praising your God of help and hope. And we noted there the general warning and encouragement to all. But then there is in the second place to self, to you and me, when we utter the words of the psalm, the personal conclusion and resolution. The conclusion, as we just saw, is drawn in verse 10. But in a way, it's also already there up front in the verses 1b to 2, in the form of a self-address, an instruction in the singular to himself. Verse 1a, praise the Lord, is in the plural. Verse 1b, praise the Lord, O my soul, is in the singular. It's to the singer himself. And the greatness of the Creator and the loving kindness of the covenant Lord, which he will sing about in the following strophes, they catch up with him, they catch him up out of himself, as it were, and free him from the horizon of his daily trouble so that he desires and encourages himself to dwell on these heights of thanksgiving and prays as long as he lives, as long as he is around, as long as he is still here. The poet draws the conclusion also for himself up front. He is leading by example. And he wants to bring and take his audience along with him. And note how praise and life or soul are intertwined three times in these verses. Now, how can this close relationship between praise and life or soul be understood? What explains this close connection, this joyful harmony? Well, earlier, 
we heard the resonances, the echoes of Genesis. And that brings us back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created. And that, in a way, is a sentence that determines all. Six 24-hour days or millions of years, if you are in awe of today's science, the point remains the same. God created the world. It was his plan, his work, and his intention and purpose. And in all this, the key question is, what then did he ordain to be the purpose, the point of man, of you and my and our existence? Now, we all know, of course, the answer because it's there in the Shorter Catechism. The chief purpose of man is to glorify God in work and in praise. That is why man was created. And then, as we also read in Genesis, there was the fall, and this harmony arose. And life is hard, and praise, therefore, difficult. And the mood music is often different. But that is not how it was meant to be. Now, have you ever noticed, as I think C.S. Lewis pointed out, that we like to praise what we value and often invite others to join us. Isn't she lovely about your daughter or your granddaughter or your girlfriend? Didn't do a good job, your husband repairing the car, maybe. Isn't it, on your walk in nature, a glorious sight? And when you hear yourself say this, do you feel then grumpy or down or unhappy? Or the opposite? Are you at such a moment happy and delighted? To quote C.S. Lewis, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is the, its appointed consummation. It is, of course, a bit of a mouthful. It is its appointed consummation. But what it means, I guess, is this. Living the life as it was intended to be brings harmony and enjoyment. And that is why the psalmist can so sound so happy in the verses 1b and 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. And we may recognize this because, of course, we are most likely to be happy in a job or with work that comes naturally to us. And if you are an arty person who likes computers, maybe you'd rather build websites than uh, be a park ranger. But then if you are an outdoors person, maybe you'd rather be a park ranger than an accountant. And what man was created for is not to pursue his own goals and honor his own gods, whatever they may be, but as the Shorter Catechism says, the chief aim of man is to glorify God in his work and in his words and in their song. You should try it. 
and find that it suits you, that it completes your enjoyment. And as it was in the beginning, so it again will be. Once God has restored it all, as we read in Revelations. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Isaac Watts, again in his paraphrase of the psalm, says, I'll, make my ma- I'll praise my maker with my breath, and when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler powers. My days of praise shall never be past. Why life and thought and being last, or immortality endures. And that is hope, the future, the psalmist refers to and that re- revelations feels. That is the New Testament understanding of as long as I live. And you see the happiness of your song and your praise may then appeal to others. A well-known Dutch poet was brought up by a devout Christian mother. But later in life, he became detached from his faith. He did not become hostile and nasty like some, but somewhat regretfully observed that it had all become rather remote. But it left a hole. And there was a longing for peace and for the trust that slipped away. And in one of his poems, he describes how he is sitting or lying on a sunny, quiet day alone on one of the meadow banks of one of the rivers in Holland. And the boat comes down that stream, and an unknown woman holding the helm is there, and across the water floats the sound of singing that evokes in him again this longing. For, he says, what I thought I heard, it was a psalm of her, my mother. Praise him, she sang, and his hand will ever guard you. And so then when you cannot speak, and you cannot preach, and you even have a stutter, in singing the praise of the Lord you will call, like the poet here in verse 2, the other to join you in your joy. Now, briefly then, and in closing, there isn't really much point in trying to summarize or embellish or improve on the wording of this psalm. Uh, I cannot better the poet. The core, the encouragement of the psalm is in verse 5. Blessed is he. Congratulations with the fact to him or to her. Whose help in the here and now is the God of Jacob, the God of all these flawed people, whose hope for the future and into eternity is the Lord, the covenant Lord, who never lets you go, his God, the almighty creator, and still your God. 
And then there is the conclusion in the verses 1 to 2. Praise, instruction in the singular, O my soul, my inner being, what I really am, the Lord. I will sing the Lord, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God for as long as I'm here. For that is the purpose of me living. And then to all in the plural, praise the Lord. Amen. Let us pray.